you're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter. And as you're doing that, I would simply ask that you also multitask here and grab that little black notebook on the far left-hand side of the aisle. If you're sitting on that far left-hand side, fill out your information, pass it down. It is simply a way for us to know you are here, but it's also a way for you to list any prayer requests, and we really do take those seriously. We pray for those throughout the week and even on Sunday mornings, and I mentioned this last week. Uh, If you'd ever love to come and pray with us at 845 on Sunday morning or come for prayer, we would be honored that you would come up and say, hey, could you all pray for me or or my family or somebody? We would be honored to do that. This morning, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to cover four verses today, verses 13 through 16. We are walking through a series called Exiles. When I was um, 15 years old, years old, I entered into a strange phenomenon. I grew up in a very small rural town in northwest Arkansas, a town of about 2,000 people, really small. And uh, growing up there, I didn't realize about different people, meaning everyone around me, we were exactly the same except maybe male and female. I mean, that was, that was really the only difference. I mean, I never knew anybody. I never grew up with anyone that was from a different race. I never knew of someone really from even a different economic status. I, even, I didn't even know anyone from a different religion. I mean, there was a, a First Baptist Church, there was Calvary Baptist Church, and a, a, a Methodist Church, and that, that was it. I didn't know anybody even from a different religion. We were all cut from the same cloth as the saying goes. But then in October of 1988, my family moved from Ozark, Arkansas to Henderson, Texas. And all of a sudden, my my sphere of influence just went through the roof. And I think, I know you're thinking, wow, I mean, that was a big change for you, little bitty Henderson, Texas. But I mean, that, that was all I knew was this small town where we're all the same, moving to Henderson. Uh, was quite different. Now, imagine what it had been like if I had moved to Dallas or Chicago or L.A. I mean, my mind would have been totally blown. But I remember even walking in on my first few days of school and noticing, well, there's actually different groups of people. I remember one group, uh, I don't know what they would call themselves, but it was kind of this this grunge rock kind of thing. I remember they wore a lot of black. There was even black trench coats. They wore longer hair. And I remember going, that's a unique identifiable group that I, I didn't even know anything about. Then there were kids that, um, I don't know, dressed really nice. And they did this funny thing. I'd never seen it before. I mean, I was, this is late 80s. Man, I'm still like wearing parachute pants and stuff. But they took the bottom of their pants and they, they folded it and they rolled it up. Never seen that before in my life. They wore these funny shirts that they, I went home and I said, Mom, What's a turtleneck? And then they wore these Mr. Roger little sweaters, 
And I didn't know what was going on. I just remember going, I've never seen that before in my life. And I went, well, that group's really different than that group. And then I noticed a third group. There was a group that wore Wranglers, or if you're a girl, I think it was called Rocky Mountains. But they had to be so starched that it had this white line down the front and the back of the pants. And then they wore these real colorful shirts that looked like they had just dipped them in a bucket of starch because they were so stiff. And I just remember thinking, there are some people that are really different than me. And for the first time in my life, I remember noticing, wow, there really are different groups of people. Now, I'd done anything to accept any group. I'd even put all those styles together if any group would have accepted me. And I never really found my style. I still don't know today. Um, But this is what I learned, that our lives reflect really who we belong to. So punk rock or grunge, that their lives reflected that, oh, this, this is my group. And, you know, the, the Wranglers and the starched jeans and stuff, I mean, that identified them. They were reflecting, hey, this is my group. Well, in this case, everyone's clothing and maybe even the way they talk reflected the group they belong to. And our lives do that. They reflect who we belong to. So this morning, Peter is going to do something next in his letter. It's kind of the next big section of his letter. He is going to build upon the foundations of the first 12 verses that we we made it through. And he talked about the truth of who God was, and that he's got this strange group called exiles, and he builds this foundation that these exiles were supposed to believe. And now he's going to say, now do something. Now act upon what is true about you. So he's going to show us today that our lives reflect who we belong to. So picking up in 1 Peter, beginning in verse 13, let me read those four verses for us. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Thus saith the Lord. So beginning there in verse 13, it says, therefore. Now I was always taught, anytime you see therefore, you're to stop and see what you're actually there for. So we read that. We need to stop and say, what is going on? So for the first 12 verses, Peter is celebrating what God has done for believers in Jesus Christ. He did this by focusing on really the work of the Trinity. Remember this, God the Father caused us to be born again. God the Son dies for us. And God the Spirit is guarding our inheritance. And he wants them to know, That is the bedrock truth of everything you need to believe. This is where you start. So then over the next four verses, Peter is going to use a mixture of what we call imperatives or commands and also participles or ways to do that. And we have to be real careful. Sometimes we got to dig a little deeper to make sure that we understand and see really what he's talking about, separating what is a command and then how do you live that out. But in these four verses, there's actually only two commands or two imperatives. And if you underline things in your Bible, you take notes, 
Here's a good one. The two are this. Set your hope. It's the first command we have in verse 13. And the second command doesn't come until verse 15 where it says, be holy. So what we need to do, we take those and we pull them out. Those are our commands. And then we make sure we understand exactly what is Peter talking about. How do we live that out? So remember, he's writing to exiles, people that are living as strangers in a, in a dark land. This is not their home. Now, it could be two groups. It could be uh, Jews that are no longer living in Jerusalem, and they're living in a, an area that we know as modern-day Turkey. But they are to live, and they're living as exiles, meaning this is not your home. But the other group he could have in mind are Christians, people that have followed now Jesus Christ, that knowing, hey, this world right here is not my home. That there is coming another land. There is coming a new heaven and new earth, and I am actually a citizen of that. And Rome is starting to persecute the Jews or the Christians. Remember Nero, he is burned the city to the ground. He blames the Christians. And so now we begin realizing, oh, persecution is actually starting. Some people have simply lost privileges. Some businesses, people either won't do business with you or you are now being taxed that you have no way to provide for your family. Some were not allowed to send their children to certain schools and even some, I believe Paul, has even lost his life. So in the midst of all of this, Peter boldly is calling these exiles to do two things. Set your hope and be holy. So we could say when persecution comes, when, when difficulties and struggles come into our lives, the two most important things we can do are set our hope and be holy. So let's look at what Peter is saying here about setting your hope. Verse 13, let me read again. It says, therefore... We know why we're there for, what he's thinking about. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, first command, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I've, I've taken it, and listen, I, I'm, I'm not the one that should probably be doing this, but I, I rewrote, I put a different paraphrase to move the command to the, the beginning to... Then show us how do we live that. So maybe this is a, a clearer way, not a better way, a clearer way of rewriting that verse. It says, therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So what I want us to do, if the first thing is to set our hope, well, what does he mean by set your hope? Well, setting your hope means to reorient or to refocus your thinking. He's used the first 12 verses to build on the foundation that God has established our hope, and we are to fix our hope on that. God establishes, we stay focused. And we are to hope, and this is what he has in mind, we are to hope that God has our past, our present, and our future in his hands. But, the biblical word for hope here, it's a, it's a little different than what we might naturally think. We would say, you know, I hope my candidate wins the election. 
or I hope my team wins the game, or I hope that I'm going to get invited to this party that, that's going to be happening this week, and I hope I don't get called in to work today. But that's not the biblical idea of hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope means believing and trusting that God will do what He has promised. And listen, biblical hope is not diversity. Biblical hope is not, it's more of an all-in kind of mindset. Biblical hope is not putting your hope in God and something else, or God plus this. Biblical hope is not, you know what, I'm going I'm to put my hope in God plus the lottery. You know, if I could just have that, then I would know all things would be okay. Or, you know what, my hope is in God, and as long as I can be a great parent, then everything will be okay. It's not, well, I, I hope in God, and I'm really trusting in the possessions that I have because they really... That helps me feel better about myself. I know things are looking good. It's not God and something else. A biblical hope is an all-in hope that is set fully on Jesus Christ. So you're asking, well, how do I know? How do I know if I want to be there, but, but how do I know? Well, this is a question I often ask myself is, what could be taken away from me? Or what could I do without and still have purpose, meaning, and hope that things will be okay. And I ask myself that all the time. What could be taken away, and I still have hope, and I still know everything's going to be okay, and I could still find purpose and meaning in my life, or what could I do without? What if my job was taken? Our savings, our homes, our jobs, our children, our education. I mean, what could we have taken away, and know that everything's going to still be okay. So Peter is commanding the believers to follow Christ, exiles to set their hope fully, meaning without reservation on the grace that was brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that we have hope, and we know that that day is coming, and that He holds our past, our present, and our future in His hand. So what do we do? That's the imperative. We are to set our hope. Then how do we do it? How do we have an all-in kind of hope? And Peter gives us two things. One, he says, prepare your minds for action. So this is where you draw a little arrow back and, and you show this is what he's talking about. Set your hope by preparing your minds for action. And this means to collect your thoughts. It, it means to um, take that moment and just kind of, okay, where am I? What's going on? Am I ready for the next step? If you have a King James Bible, it's got a phrase you've probably never used. I know I've not used much. I've never looked at my wife or one of my kids and said, all right, gird up your loins. But the picture is that a man would wear a long cloak, and if you were to run or if you were about to be in a battle or if you were about to work, that would be a hindrance. You could get tangled up. You could trip, so you would take it, and you would pull it through, and you would tuck it into your sash or your belt. You would gird up. And get ready for what is about to happen. So in East Texas thought and talk, it means stop being a spiritual couch potato. And that's what the real Greek means there. It means to stop being a spiritual couch potato. Get ready, prepare for action. He says you must fight with your thoughts. 
the great Martin Lloyd-Jones would often say, we spend far too much time listening to ourselves and we need to spend more time preaching to ourselves. Because our minds are such powerful things. But where your mind goes, you know what soon follows your mind, your heart. And where your heart goes, that's where your hands will be. Your hands will carry out what's in your heart, and your heart will carry out what has come from your minds. Or to say it another way, outlook determines outcome. Or our attitude determines our action. And we have to be careful of the things that we allow into our minds and allow ourselves to focus on. And so I would ask, what thoughts are we allowing to enter our minds? Peter says you need to store up those things that are true and honorable and, and praiseworthy. But our minds are really good at taking that, that thing, that one thing, that unholy thing, maybe that incorrect thing in our minds that love to just ponder there. In fact, man, you could receive, maybe you've done something, maybe you did something at work or you did something uh, at home or whatever it might be. If you heard 99 positive compliments about what you just did and one person says one negative thing or one thing that goes against it you know what your mind will dwell on it is that one complaint it's that one negative thought and it it almost erases the 99 because our minds love to be controlling over that one thought to bring us down our minds are great at storing up thoughts that are destructive at least I know my mind is. I know my mind is sinful, it is dark, and it is in full need of redemption. And he says, prepare your minds. Be ready. Next, next thing he says is be sober-minded. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a fully inebriated person, but it's a person that they can't even think straight. They, they can't walk straight. Their, their judgment is just completely impaired they stumble around and Peter is not saying just don't get drunk he is saying do not live in a a foggy state of mind like a drunk person is he is saying don't allow yourself to just drift off and and become drowsy he says think right and think deeply about God this is what David Mathis of Desiring God says Gospel hope guards our minds in the battle swirling around us and lifts our gaze beyond our present confusion to the certainty of victory. The most sober thinkers in the world are those that have drunk most deeply of the gospel. Man, how much time do you spend listening to the thoughts in your head and the thoughts of others Instead of focusing on the truth, the power, and the certainty of the gospel. I mean, that's something I need to constantly be reminding myself because I listen to those thoughts in my heads or I'm taking the thoughts from other people and I'm allowing that to take me captive instead of things of the gospel. So Peter says even in times, especially in times of struggle and pain and uncertainty and even persecution, to set our hope fully on the gospel by preparing our minds for action. Stop being spiritual couch potatoes. We need to start preaching to ourselves more than listening and be sober 
minded. So the next three verses are where we find the second command. So first, set your hope by preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded. And then he says, beginning in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your formal ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So in verse 15, the second command is be holy. Holy means to be, you've probably heard the phrase, set apart, be different. But Peter is not saying just look different, just talk different, just think different than those around you. He says, be holy as God is holy. Meaning, we are not just to be set apart and to be different from others that are non-believers. Or or we're to be different than, than maybe people that are following the ways of the world. He's not saying, don't just be different from them. We are to be set apart in our point of reference, our goal, our standard is to be God. And my first thought was, well, Peter, that's absolutely impossible. If you could only come live with me for a day. But you're not absolutely correct. There is no way I could be exactly like God. I could not live up to His mercifulness or His graciousness, His love, His forgiveness. I never could do all the things that He desires, that He is. I could not be holy as I am holy. But He has sent the one who could be that for us. And so here's what he does. He takes three things about being holy. So same kind of thing. The command is to be holy. Now what about that? How do we do that? And he's going to show three things. One, uh, it's there in verse 14. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former life or your former mindset, your former ignorance, meaning you did not know. Now you do. Do not go back to those things. But his readers, this is why context is so important, his readers were very much into idol worship. You're there in that area of Asia Minor, of Turkey, and these people believed in gods like Zeus, Artemis, Venus, Ares, Apollo. And what is different that we hear those, and we've studied them in what we call Greek mythology. We know, oh, that, that's silly. I mean, that was just something they, they chose to, to have almost as something they believe in and they move on. But these people believed in these gods. They were not fake. They were not just an, an idea to them. They were real. Now, how do I know that? Because you can read accounts in history about people sacrificing children and young girls. You're not going to do that if you don't believe that that God is going to honor that sacrifice. They would have all-night parties full of promiscuity because they believed that the gods were real. Peter is not saying, 
hey, you're worshiping this God of Zeus or Apollos. Just take what you're doing and move it over here and do the same kind of worship to a man I'm telling you his name is Jesus. Peter is calling people to a radically and completely different way of worship. He says, not just be conformed, but completely turn from those things to a totally new way of orienting your life in worship. And then he says the second thing, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, your Bible, hopefully if you've got one that has footnotes or cross-references, hopefully you look down and you see Leviticus, and it's going to be 11... 40-something, 1144, 1144, and he says, he's quoting back to the time of Leviticus there, 1144, Drew says, and so here's what's happened, Genesis is the book of God and his uh, loving creation, his sovereign creation, then we have Exodus about God taking his people and calling them uh, out of bondage from Egypt, him delivering them from slavery. And then we have Leviticus, and that's always where I start my one-year reading plan, and I get to Leviticus, and then I have to start over next year kind of thing. But this is where he talks about the laws of fellowship. Every law was to show or to teach Israel that they were to be set apart, they were to be different, they were to be holy. But picture this. I mean, everyone around you would have numerous idols. Your yard would be full of them. You would walk in the house. They would be on the walls. They'd be on the mantle. They'd be on the shelves. I mean, you, they had idols, graven images of everything because they, they had to try so hard to keep themselves in good graces with the God because the last thing I need is for Zeus to be mad at me or, or Arius to be mad at me that's going to cause something to happen. So they had these idols everywhere. They wore them around their necks, on their clothing. But Israel was not to have not even a single graven image, not just an image of a false god. It says that they were not even to have a picture of God that we know from the Old Testament called Yahweh. They were not even to have an image of God that they are now following. Now, why would God tell them, I don't even want there to be a picture. I do not want there to be one sculpture. I don't want there to be one graven image of me even, the God of all gods in your home. Now, why would he not want them to do that? Because I'm thinking, man, you should go to a city. We need one bigger than all their other gods. But he says, no, not one single picture of me. Because all the pagan neighbors had images and uh, pictures and sculptures of all the other gods, but Israel was not supposed to. And here's why. The people of Israel were supposed to be the ones to reflect God's image and His nature and His character. Not, not a graven image, not some sculpture. They were to be the ones that were reflecting God to everyone around them, not an image. They were to be God to everyone Around them. And here's just a few of things that they were supposed to be different in. One, no eating of bottom dwellers. So if you love catfish, you would not get to do that. Women and men, be correct here in this, your house had to be so clean that if an insect touched a dish, so one little thing crawled over a dish, didn't matter if it was on the table or, or put up. You would have to break the dish and you could not use it anymore. 
Your clothes had to be completely perfect, meaning there could not be a single hole in any of your clothes. If you had mildew in your house, you'd completely get rid of it, even tear out a wall. If it was so bad, you had to tear down your home and rebuild it. If you broke out in a sore on your body, you were cast out until you were healed. No premarital sex, no adultery, no stealing, no murder, no corrupt business deals. You could not even, or you must, forgive someone. If somebody did something against you, it says that if they were caught underneath their wagon, you had to help them. There was no, I love what one guy says, no finders keepers. If you found something, you could not spend it, you could not use it. You had to hold on to it forever until someone came and claimed it. You were to live six days, rest on one. That was very different. You were then, every 50 years, or every seven years, you had to let the land rest. Every 50 years, you had to forgive all debt. So if you were a person living this time, following the law, Israel at this time, you had to keep your inside clean by what you ate, your body clean, your house clean, they were to be symbols of God's holiness. Now that is the time, at this time, they were the most civilized, the most clean, the most organized nation that existed. And they too were to reflect the glory of God in a dark, selfish, dirty, corrupt, and idol-stricken world. They themselves were supposed to be the image of the invisible God. He's saying, follow because it is written. Then the third one, as obedient children. You're to be holy. In fact, you're to be holy by not conforming to the passions of your former ignorance. It's a whole new way of life. You're to do this because I've commanded from the scriptures of old. And now, as obedient children. So whether you like it or not, your children will take after you. There are things that your children... And my children will need therapy for later on down the line. It's just a way of life. I inherited that from my family. I need therapy. My kids are going to need therapy. They just become and they take after us. Your children reflect us. Anytime I would take a group anywhere, I'd always tell them three things. I would remind our kids hey, and our students if we were on a church trip, hey, you are always a reflection of God, your church, in your family. Peter's saying that you being holy is not grounded in yourself because he knows that that's nothing but willpower. He's not saying, hey, go out and now just be holy. You can do it. I, I know you can. I'm cheering you on. Peter is saying that our obedience, our holiness comes out because we are because of the who the one we belong to. He says, as obedient children. Because the only those that belong to God, those that believe in Jesus Christ, those that have the Holy Spirit living in them, we are the only ones that can be holy. You can't do it on your own. There is something that is very unique about what Peter is talking to about this relationship of being God's child. You see, the nation of Israel was the first and now it's anyone, the church, those who believe and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And you know what God did even back then before He ever gave one command to Israel? 
And before we ever get one command to even Adam and Eve, before there's even one command to the church, God does something every time before there's ever a command. And what we see is at first, God calls and He makes them His children before He ever gives them law. There is always relationship before there's ever a command to obedience. And I would say it this way, there is always grace before there is law. There is always relationship before there is obedience. You are not made a child of God by obeying. He is saying, but we are to obey because we are His children. It always starts with a relationship and then we get to live that out because He is our Father. So Peter's being real honest. He is saying, as obedient children, meaning you are either a son of obedience, now live in that, or you are a son or daughter of disobedience. Listen to how David Helm says it. If God is not your father, living a holy life will be impossible because holy conduct is the fruit of being a member of his family. We simply do not possess the power to do so from our own genes and heritage. So Peter wants us to realize that even though we are living in a wicked-filled world, with thousands of daily trials and dark temptations, our focus must rise above that. That we are to see that grace is always before law. Redemption is always before obedience. And God is always for you before you are ever for Him. It always starts with Him. So over 25 years ago, my world opened up into different groups of people. Each group had their own dress. They had their own little group. They had their own style, their own way of life. But as I've gotten older, I realize there are really only two groups in the world. Really only two groups that we should even care about. It's those that are saved and those that are unsaved. Or maybe we could even say those that are Christian and we pray to God, those that are hopefully just pre-Christians. The redeemed, and it should break our hearts to the damned. So this is what I want to do. I want to close by speaking to both groups. Christian, let, let, let me speak in to you. And I wrote this down because I, I, I wanted to think about him. I wanted it to be clear. So allow me just to read this for you and to you. Christian, you are free. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. God is not mad at you, and He will never, ever be mad at you. Sit, live, and abide under His love and devotion. In fact, if you never obeyed again, He would still love you and cherish you. And if you never pleased Him from this point, even if you never had the desire to please Him anymore, He would still love you. You are covered with the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus sees you, or God sees you as blameless because of His Son. God sees you as if you had never sinned, and as if you are always, 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 always. Nothing can change that. And if you sin, He will forgive you. Always and forever. You are His child forever. Jesus paid it all. It is. Is 
finished. And we are to live according to that reality. Grace before law. Relationship before obedience. Now if you're not, if you're not a follower of Christ. Deep down I know you have a lot of thoughts. Thoughts about what you're really doing with your life. Thoughts about is there more to life than just what I see, feel, touch and smell. There are thoughts about what happens when I die and this life is over. What is next for me? And listen, I have had all of those thoughts and more and more. So I'd say there is only one hope, meaning and assurance of life after death. And it's in the one that we lovingly call Jesus. He is the divine being that became a human to die for your sins and to save you by faith. Nothing should have your soul and your life but Him because nothing else really matters. And so I would say, this is what you do. You ask God if that's true. Asking to show you, asking for the faith to believe that all of that is true. And so Peter this morning, man, how thankful I have been for his encouragement and his challenge this week. Because the truth is that our lives reflect who we belong to. Let's pray. Our lovingly gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for a morning to be able to come together as a family, to love one another, to encourage one another, And I'm so thankful that you have assembled a group of people that are not fake, that are not pretentious, that this is a safe place to be honest about where we are. And so, Father, I pray for the truth this morning, that you would take this truth and you would drive it deep down from our thoughts to our hearts and out through our hands. Help us, because we cannot do this on our home. Help us to set our hope fully on you and an all-abandoned hope to trust in nothing else that you hold tomorrow and that we believe that our hope is that you have all of that in your hands. Then help us to be holy. Help us to live different, set-apart lives as you. Help us to reflect every facet of our life to reflect you in our jobs, in our parenting, in our marriages, in, in even our free and leisure time. Help us to always reflect you. Father, we cannot do this on our own. We are in desperate need of you. So it's in your Son's name and by the power of your Spirit, we ask all of these things. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.